Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And this week I'm talking to Jill Lepore, the historian of America and also one of the most prolific writers in The New Yorker. She writes about everything. She was in Cambridge to give a lecture about the rise and fall of the fact. It was a history of fact-checking and it was actually terrifying. So she was here on the day of Trump's inauguration and as you'll hear in a minute, we spoke just a couple of hours before he took to the stage. And this is the week that added a new term to our political dictionary, alternative facts, to go with post-truth because Donald Trump's press spokesman is insisting that more people turned up to see him inaugurated than any other president in history. And that's not true, but apparently it's an alternative fact. Josh Simons was there, and he recorded some of the voices and sounds of Inauguration Day. another good one like this one and and what do you think is different about him in comparison to previous ones not being bought by politicians his own man gonna do a lot of different um, bringing down the government to a smaller where the people can control it not the government he is going to change everything January 20 2017 will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. When I spoke to Jill Lepore, we didn't know what Donald Trump was going to say, but we carried on the conversation about inaugural addresses and our favourites. And I asked her which hers had been, and it turns out it's not one of the ones that we talked about. It's not one of the ones actually that we knew about. So it was a few years ago, right before Obama was giving his first inaugural, I went and read all of the inaugural addresses, which I had never done before. And it was incredibly fun. It it? was great. (laughs) And, you know, they're much maligned. And in fact, some of them are quite terrible. For sure. But a lot of the difficulty is just the parlance of the day, right? This floweriness. But there's just some, there's something kind of an epic quality. It builds it's like and a it very long and poem. It and, <laughs> and you can really see change over time. And there's some things that are marked out by historians and political scientists who've looked at them that are really interesting. Like all but Zachary Taylor's from the 19th century mentioned the Constitution. Because in fact, the president at his inauguration is swearing his fidelity to the Constitution. That's Not the to job. the American yeah. people. There's nothing about the American people in the, in the oath of office, which is prescribed by the Constitution itself. So it's about wedding yourself to the Constitution. And in the 20th century, that all falls out. We're kind of beginning with Wilson, who was a political scientist, was, had a very different idea about the Constitution than his predecessors did. One thing that people did a number of years ago was subject the inaugural addresses to the they called the Fleischmann reading level test. They descend from Washington's like at a collegiate level of reading to George W. Bush was at a eighth grade reading the reading level. And that's the language has changed as well. But the thing I got completely obsessed with was James Garfield, because he's one of the few presidents who worked very hard, which at the time was a little bit difficult to compile and read all of the addresses of his predecessors. He felt that that was the obligation. And he kept this really detailed diary. So he gets elected, you know, in November. And this is when inauguration happened on March 4th. And here comes December. He gets an aide to go to the Library of Congress and 
get together all the previous inaugural addresses. He starts reading through them, and he's doing exactly what I'm doing at the same time. And he'll have in his diary, wow, Jackson's was, you know, not as good as I expected. And he's keeping notes. And um, he gets to Lincoln's first, which is my favorite. And he's just floored. <laughs> and he writes in his diary, I've asked an aide whether I have an obligation, in fact, to deliver an address, because he's humble by the kind of soaring rhetoric of Lincoln's call for national union. And he begins to investigate that, and then petty things interfere. He has to have dental surgery right around Christmas. That was a big he, deal he, back he then, right? It was a really big deal. That's but not... he wants to get it done before he takes up, before he's inaugurated, and he wants to have recovered from that. And he just keeps backing off of it, and he's embarrassed by what he's written. And then he delivers quite a lovely inaugural address. And one of the things that's lovely about Garfield, this is 1881 would have been, is he's really trying to wrestle with race in a different way as a guy from Ohio after the end of Reconstruction, but really before the complete rise and takeover of the Klan of American political life. And it foreshadows some kind of unlikely 20th century addresses that I also really love. I think it's I think it's Taft who says, uh, I think it might be Taft, the Negroes are now Americans. People just keep trying to wrestle with that. And it was really interesting to see how race entered the inaugurals as part of a conversation. I was reading them on the eve of Obama's inauguration and wondering how he would rewrite that account. But I just loved the idea of someone taking a scholarly approach, because you knew that Obama would do the same thing, right? He would be one of the few. Like, I, I don't think that his predecessor, George W. Bush, sat down and read them all, but, but Obama absolutely did. So last week, we read them, not all of them. And the context of reading them all this time and thinking about what's going to come, and it's going to be in a couple of hours from when we're speaking now, is so different. Eight years is, it's a sort of epoch in American politics, thinking about what you might have wondered about inaugurals before Obama's first and the sort of gulf that we feel even two hours out from what Trump might say. Eight years is a long time. Eight years is a long time. And and I don't think the visceral feeling of uncertainty that people have is a really unusual one. There was a great deal of sense of novelty and freshness with Obama's. Like it was a new chapter. It was the beginning of a new era, but it wasn't off course. So I've been working for the last year and a half or so, I'm writing a history of the United States from 1492 to the present. So everything that I think about is kind of like starting with 1492 and you move to 2016 and you're plotting various trajectories. There are shifting ideas uh, about humanity. There are shifting populations and there are shifting modes of economic activity and there are shifting ideas about rights. And things do go kind of backward and forward and up and down, but on the whole, you are generally plotting some kind of a course that's recognizable, like on a kind of XY diagram. And we're really sort of at this moment. What are we, what's next? Like, where's the next data point on on so many different questions? But Obama, on the day after Trump won, he tried to reassure us by channeling what you just said with that line that we zig and we zag. Yeah. And I just thought at the time, no, well, maybe you used to, but this isn't a zig and a zag, is it? You know, I absolutely felt the way Obama was trying to make his listeners feel in talking that way about change, really up until maybe last winter. Because as an American historian, as a historian of American politics, I'm asked all the time, has it ever been like this before? So I'm like 2008, the journalistic mode is to say... is it as bad as the Great Depression? You know, like you have to say, like, well, we're not eating our shoe leather yet. What are you talking about? Is it as bad as the Great Depression? No. The entire liberal world order isn't being called into question by the rise of fascism. Like, this is economic distress. It's not 1931. But but people want to understand a particular crisis in, in reference to the scale of a past crisis. So there's both that move, which is kind of horizontal and then there's the kind of vertical move is like is it better or worse and I'm sure you know naive and sort of knee-jerk response is to say no this is not unprecedented this is not unlike anything that's ever come before but neither can you collapse the distance between this moment and some early event and and really liken them I'm resistant to those modes of analysis and political partisanship have we ever been so divided before and I always think about that 
are you just erasing from our entire history the politics of slavery? Like, that is part of American political history. Like, you can't say we've never been so divided before when four million people were enslaved human beings who remember are members of our political society. Like, all those questions presuppose a narrative of American history that sets to one side the experience of people who, whose ancestors come from Africa. So the, the question just reveals how poorly historians have done the job of integrating an account of the history of race and slavery and Jim Crow into a political account of the United States. So if you're looking just at the history of the presidency or something, or you're looking at the history of the GDP or something, or you're looking at or the, campaigns. The, the party system. Well, yeah, like, or have South we ever had a campaign? As cr- yeah. But what I'm trying to do in this book, I'm right, obviously, is, that, is you're really trying to integrate and understand slavery as a form of politics or Jim Crow is a form of politics. And, and then when you integrate all those things, you also see how crucial those more violent pieces of the American political past make possible the relative peaceableness of the non-black politics, which is a thing that American historians have been writing about for a long time, but I don't think really has kind of left the academy and become a dominant interpretation of how we understand the long history. You know, we've struggled with these things for a long time, and they have been really difficult political problems that have been addressed successfully at some moments and not addressed so well at other moments. And I can see much more continuity than change, and I take solace in the study of the past. I'm not as worried as you are, would be always my answer as a historian. And then like... <laughs> this, was, this was you a few months about, ago. <laughs> about a year ago, I started... Actually, no, maybe I am really uh, as worried as everybody. I, I don't know, something, re- I can't, I've been trying to puzzle over what it is, what exactly it is that kind of moved me from the solace of history to the bleakness of the, pre- I don't know, something changed. And if you've been writing that book for 18 months, you started more or less when you got off the plane to announce his candidacy. I mean, that's, so you've, you've been yeah. writing it during the period of, yeah. and, and that 18 month. yeah. It's like something that's hard to assimilate into right. the, the solace story, just because it's had so many moments right. where you just think, whoa, we've taken another step. Right. And so you have to work hard as a scholar then not to be making a selection of details in your own account that seem to be the inevitable backstory that marches forward to the present that we are now in. You know, mm. And that that's actually been a really interesting puzzle. So when you read... Stephen Douglas in 1858 trying to convince an audience of voters in Illinois who want to vote for Abraham Lincoln that if you read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you discover, Douglas would argue, that the United States was founded by white people for the benefit of their posterity forever. And that's a big argument in 1858. And it looms a little larger in 2016 than it did in 2008. As a historian looking at the chronicle of the past, that's going to leap out to you and maybe feel that that's a thread that has continued maybe and has had a more vital continuous source of support as a counter interpretation so maybe that shifted things for me a little bit too that you know everywhere you look in the historical record you can find plenty of evidence that will plot a trajectory towards now that's what historians do we can't help but do that one thing that I've been struck by just in the history of the last eight years is, and you, and you wrote about this, you wrote a book about it, you, you you studied the Tea Party, you went to not quite live among them, but to engage with them. And the Tea Party story is part of the last eight years. And I've never been completely sure, as Trump has step by step got closer to where we are today, where the Tea Party kind of ends and the Trump movement starts, because they're obviously connected. But they're also very, very different. And one of the differences is the Tea Party was about history. It was an originalist movement. It was a a pretty crude take on history, but it was very much grounded in a sense of where America started Mm -hmm. and what it means. And Trump doesn't have any of that. And yet the two are connected, aren't they? Can you have Trumpism without the Tea Party? I think you probably could, although I think some similar forces that drew people into the Tea Party drew people into the Obama movement and many more people into into supporting Obama than supported the Tea Party. From the vantage of immediate policy ends, they're pretty different. Although most people who were drawn into the Tea Party were drawn into it because they wanted to first resist the passage of, of the Affordable Care Act and then once it passed, 
demand its repeal. That really was the animating policy behind the Tea Party. And so that's a, obviously that's been a huge piece of Trump's campaign. But these people, I, so I spent a lot of time with people in the Tea Party in the Boston chapter, partly because that was just funny, like the Boston Tea Party. They were incredibly generous with their time with me, and it was really interesting to spend time talking to people. And having spent time this last year doing a bit of reporting, I went to the Republican convention and things like that in various rallies. The people who were drawn to the Tea Party had a lot in common with people who were drawn to the Trump movement in that they shared a similar set of fears about the direction of the federal government and their the people who were drawn to the Tea Party had this idea to turn back to when America was great required going back to 1773. <laughs> they wanted to make America great again in this revolutionary sense. And so they spoke the language of revolution, which Trump talks about all the time that he's leading a political revolution. But a big difference, as, you, as your question intimated, is their fidelity to the Constitution. And with great sincerity and real intellectual interest and kind of avid curiosity, they studied the Constitution. These are people who, most of them were Christians who were Christians of a certain kind of Protestantism that read the Bible literally, and they wanted to read the Constitution that way too. And they thought doctrinally that that was the right way to read the Constitution. And it made a lot of sense to them that where America had gone wrong was when Americans stopped reading the Constitution as if it were a divinely inspired, revealed truth and became critical of it. And they, they had this whole kind of critique of the particular Supreme Court that was in place at that time. They hadn't studied American history more than, you know, most people do when they're in elementary school and high school. And But they were really hugely curious and they felt righteous and very protective of their interpretation of the Constitution. And it explained to them the constellation of conservative ideas to which they were attracted. There was kind of logic to it. And this is an idea, of course, that's been amply developed and really marketed on the internet to people for a long time by the Heritage Foundation and others for a really long time, this particular kind of constitutional conservatism, and accounted for what really amounted to a populist originalism, which seems like a really weird thing, like that it doesn't really quite even make sense. But that's what really what it was. They, they had a kind of originalist mode of constitutional interpretation, and they believed that only the people could interpret the Constitution. They didn't like judge-made law. And this is none of Trump's agenda. You know, I haven't heard Trump like, saying that on the you know, on the stump. In the same way that Trump can't quote the Bible accurately, he can't quote the Constitution. It doesn't has it doesn't any sense of accountability to core principles and fundamental beliefs. He's quite mocking of all of all of these things. So, and and in that attachment to the Constitution, it was about the power of federal government and that it had grown much too big, right? I mean, that was a big strand of the Tea Party movement. Absolutely. And Donald Trump is fine with the power of federal. I mean, he hates Washington and he hates special interests. He hates the swamp, all that populism. But he's also a big government politician. And the Tea Party people have been voting for him. Yeah. So if the Tea Party is a constellation of populism and originalism Trump is that without the originalism <laughs> and, the and you realize the strength of the populism <laughs> but the other thing about the populism I think that was quite striking talking to tea, people in the Tea Party and to people who were in the active Trump campaign was the real sense of belonging that they felt in joining this movement almost everybody I talked to in both contexts had never been involved in politics before not at all like not PTA you know not on the chair of their Boy Scout council, not sort of organized activity of any sort, and that they were lonely. And this was a form of community that they didn't have available to them in their lives. And, you know, that fits with a lot of what sociologists have to say about recent decades in American life, and I'm sure in the UK as well, this sort of dissociationalism, the incredible atomistic nature of modern postmodern life, that people don't have the forms of community, the church-based forms of community, or the school-based forms of community, the kind of classic kind of the Robert Putnam argument, the bowling league community, that they found in politics a kind of community that they didn't feel anywhere else in their lives. And that sense of fellow feeling that is 
just sort of mammalian, right? Like as, and not just as a species, but as a genus, like we need to travel in packs. And they didn't have a pack. And now they had a pack. And it was kind of heartbreaking how, in the sense that I figured they were going to be betrayed by people who were feeding them whatever the ideology was. Because the commitment to, in a sense, engaging with a life of political ideas that they hadn't been part of their lives was really moving. The Tea Party movement and Trump, one does kind of morph into the other in some respects. And there's a sense of belonging, no question. Trump tapped into that. But going from a reading group that kind of comes out of Bible study to a rally of 25,000 people chanting, lock her up, you get fellow feeling from both. But it's totally different politics, isn't it? Yeah, no, the po- the politics is really different. I mean, you could find in the Tea Party a lot of a lot of that particular kind of anger. I remember one day I went to a rally in Boston Common, and Sarah Palin came in the big Tea Party bus. And, and she was good at rallies. right? She was very good at rallies, and she she was a great Constitution waver. You know, like she, the, the pocket copy would come out, and she'd wave it around. And it, but she really knew nothing about. <laughs> And it, what she really was selling was very Trumpy. Um, if you if you think about Palin in particular, someone like say Glenn Beck was quite different, but Palin really was just mad at people who were in control of the conversation. So this is Boston, right? So she comes in, and I don't know all the people who lead up into her speech are they're just sort of ditching that they could possibly be having a rally like this in Boston when Boston was such a cesspool of communists from Cambridge and that sort of you know we just hate you all we just hate you all and you think you're better than us there was a fair amount of that that is much more visually manifest I think when you look at a Trump rally kind of comes to the fore more but the other thing that the two movements really share from the Second Amendment's movement versions or the for the gun rights argument is, you know, and people have written about this a lot, but the the left decided with Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 to seek remedies through the courts, to argue for constitutional rights to defeat state statutes and to use the federal government and to use the Supreme Court to advance the cause of civil rights and later the cause of women's rights and same-sex marriage, et cetera. And conservatives, you know, by 1969, 1970, decided, okay, we have have a constitutional right that we can turn into a social movement too. Ours is called the Second Amendment. And it actually works very well. It's a very good way to mobilize people around, look, what we're actually fighting for is the Constitution. And we too have rights. But this is a rights movement for people who, tend predominantly to be white and live in not in cities. And the Second Amendment people, their information tables at the Tea Party rallies were by far the most numerous. They were there selling books called The Constitution Made Easy. I was like, look, you know, we all love the Constitution, but it's a little hard to read. You can read this copy, you know, in its version of the Second Amendment. It inverts the, the two clauses and makes the Second, <laughs> Second Amendment un, unambiguous about protecting the right of an individual to bear arms. And this was marketed as a campaign that would bring a certain kind of traditionally Democratic voter into the Republican Party. You know, this is essentially like a white rights movement. And it would be based on fidelity to the Constitution. And we can all get behind that. And we also understand that fighting for rights is the in going to the Supreme Court to fight for rights is, hey, if the other side can do it, we're going to do that too. We're going to, in fact, we're going to do it better. We're going to mobilize that we're as, a, be better as a political movement. And they're turning out to be really, really effective. But what it also creates, because the inherent argument there is there has been a conspiracy of people denying you a constitutional right. And that was the argument of people arguing for integrated schools and desegregation. There has been a conspiracy of people denying you your constitutional right. But the gun argument takes that and uses it to a different end. But at the end, you have a whole lot of people believing that everybody is conspiring to deny you their constitutional rights. But there was a big piece of the a big piece of the Tea Party, and even though the constitutional part of that's not part of Trump, 
the conspiring the bit. Part. Exactly. I was so going to say the, you take the populism out of populist originalism, and you take and the constitution out of, out of the conspiracy, and then you have populists who believe in conspiracies. I mean, the, yeah. the kind of all pl- ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN together so i'm going to ask you a variant of the question that you told me as we were walking over here it bugs you and i i totally relate to this that your ask as an american historian to tell people what moment this moment reminds you of as you were saying you try to resist so i'm going to ask you a slightly different version of that what's striking about trump is people have looked for non-american parallels to explain him which is quite rare i think when people study american politics when they go back to the 30s they don't on the whole go back to the American 30s, they go back to the European 30s. Or when they look around the world now, it's Putin, it's Erdogan, it's Modi, and so on. When you look at him as a historian, or someone who studies contemporary politics, do you think you have to look outside North American politics to understand the model of politics we're seeing? Because conspiracist populism, there are lots of non-American versions of that. Well, I think the fact that people do make that move to look outside the U.S. at contemporary parallels to Trump's rise, you know, not just in individuals, but in Brexit, for instance, suggests that we are all going downstream in the same stream. I think it's very easy to grant Trump a kind of superpower that he doesn't have as a political candidate, as a president, when we are actually kind of just headed in that direction. There are many, many forces that are taking nation states all over the world. It's the same current that we're subject to in that same, we're all in that stream together. I actually find a certain amount of comfort in that, in that these are structural changes. Maybe those those are actually harder to, to defeat than particular politicians who seem so somewhat self-sabotaging. But if we could see those forces with clarity, and when we begin to be able to see those forces with greater clarity, then those that many people would like to resist can be resisted more effectively. I think that we haven't seen them very well. And so a lot of the the political misery that many people feel has to do with not the uncertainty of what's going to happen, but the uncertainty of what actually just did happen. So yeah, there is a kind of tide and we are being carried along it in the West, maybe, and maybe more broadly than that. And then these amazing contingencies as well. You have an electoral, I say you, North America, the United States of America has an electoral college system that produces this very quirky result. It could easily have gone the other way. A different system would have given you a different result. If this was the French presidential election, Hillary Clinton would have won a handsome victory. Two points is quite good in French standards if you just have a majoritarian system. So say she had won squeaked a victory there would have been unpleasantness but also possibly not a reckoning of the forces that have to be dealt with that trump a trump presidency provides it's very hard now not to see what's at stake do you take any comfort yeah from that? i do in the sense that i, mean, I know if, you weren't if, saying that right. because you weren't but saying if, thank god he won because right. otherwise we would have <laughs> pulled a blanket over all of the misery right. if hillary had won the same republicans would have taken over Congress, we would have the same Republican Congress. That was not determined by the Electoral College. And it would have been a narrow enough victory. There would have been a kind of reckoning. But the Democratic Party is incredibly good at paying no attention to how crappy it is, to be honest. So that wouldn't have happened. And there's, you know, a lot of um, self-flagellation in the press about what we got wrong, what we did not see. And, you know, the thing that people, I think, pay least attention to as the great miss of the election season is the failure to see that the Democratic Party is an empty shell and has been for a long time. So that is a a useful, whatever side you are on politically, it's certainly good for there to be two healthy political parties in a serious contest with one another. And we don't have that right now. No, nor do we. So just do you take one take comfort solace from the fact that everyone's in the same boat? There's that. Let me ask you one last thing. Um, 
you've written about many different things in the New Yorker, and you wrote a famous piece a couple of years ago. I'm going to summarize as being against disruption. Not, not you're not against disruption, but you're against in Scaremark's this disruption ideal as a kind of good that produces innovation and so on. And some people, Peter Thiel is one perhaps, have been talking about Trump as the great disruptor, that this is this kind of sclerotic system, Washington and so on. And in the way that Silicon Valley would have just kind of chewed it up and spat it out because it doesn't work, it's analog. It needs someone to come to Washington and not just shake it up, but disrupt it. My own feeling is that disruption in politics is absolutely nothing like, even if you believe in technological innovative Mm -hmm. disruption it's nothing like that disruption in politics as a historian is not a good no it leads to chaos and suffering and death if we if we write a new phone (laughs) and violence yeah Yeah. so right so my article was about the uh, the business idea of disruptive innovation and my argument was that it rests on incredibly shaky evidence and we have taken it's become a kind of gospel in the business world and well beyond the business world. So you think historically about ideas about change over time, right? Like the, the idea of progress used to be a religious idea. Progress was the path from sin to salvation and it became secularized during the Enlightenment. Then progress becomes um, the, the improvement of man's circumstance, especially its economic circumstance. And then progress becomes very closely associated in the 19th century with technological change. And the idea that progress is a moral idea is really mostly lost by then. But there's nevertheless a a kind of sense of political progress involving the expansion of rights and kind of path towards equality. That gets kind of waylaid for a long time by evolution and the idea that societies evolve. And disruption kind of replaces evolution in its own way and the idea that well what happens is everything has to just kind of get smashed up and it's just kind of version of creative destruction it posits that the reason for change over time is people should be making more money off of the products that they sell that's where the idea comes from but it the idea became so very quickly kind of dogma in the business world that it expanded into other realms so oh universities should be disrupted oh elementary school should be disrupted we should we should also be you know we should be disrupting medical care the healthcare system needs to be disrupted well the the premise behind disruption is it's it's not actually anything to do with the public good or public welfare or the production of knowledge it has it has no other values other than the maximization of profit so we don't really want all those other realms of human society to follow that model and one realm i would say where we would not want to extend the concept of disruption which involves only the maximum profit to the people who own into politics like yeah in that sense maybe it's right to it's an accurate description of what's gone on with regard to money in politics but it can't be defended from any democratic vantage. I get, it can't possibly be defended from any ideals of good governance and of human happiness. And as you said, I think you implied in what you just said, and you said it in the article, that one of the, the implications of the disruption dogma is if you see something that hasn't been smashed up for a long time, it must be failing. So that the disruptors would look at something which has a lot, relatively long track record of success. And that becomes evidence of failure because we know on the disruption model that if you don't get disrupted, you're doomed. But you're not. I mean, you're not. Universities, you're not. I mean, universities got lots of things wrong with them, but something that survived for a few hundred years, that's not evidence of failure. No, it's not evidence of failure. And some of the things that have been aggressively disrupted from the outside the loss to human culture has been profound. The decline of local political reporting, city hall political reporting. Well, it's true that the disruptive effects of digitization on the legacy media has meant that it's very difficult for there to be local newspapers anymore. They can hire people to go to city hall every day and cover things. But that's a huge loss. It's <laughs> a huge loss. And what what a lot of people are doing all over the place is trying to think about how to replace that. Like, how can we kind of go back there and have that again? Because those people that are drawn to a Bernie Sanders campaign or drawn to the Trump campaign because they have no political community to belong to, there's no newspaper that they get that talks about what's going on in their town or in their world in any way that's legible to them. They have this weird chaos of a disrupted news media on 
their phones in their back pockets. We're supposed to sort of imagine that this passes for progress. Like it's not <laughs> like I'd rather have the 18th century idea of progress. Thank you very much. So we're now one hour, 40 minutes from Donald Trump taking the oath of office if it goes to schedule. And you're writing a history of America from 1492. And you've been writing it as his political career has gone from nothing to the presidency. It's really unfair to ask people to predict. Do you think that uh, your book will come out? I don't know when your book is due to come out, but do you think he'll still be president when you publish? So I've been working chronologically and I'm in 1931. So I'm getting there. Right. Do you think he's going to last two years? I don't trust myself to know. That's Isn't that the dilemma of our moment? We don't know who to trust about how to know what we know, right? This sort of epistemological chaos. I will say, and not to draw the false analogy with another moment, that 1931 is a quite striking moment where there are very few democracies left standing. Hardly any. <laughs> really four. <laughs> And, and this one, Britain, Britain was not in great shape in 31. And the four are very, very wobbly. And you can read anything by any meaningful thinker that you might admire. You know, like Lipman, Walter Lippmann gives a speech at Berkeley that year. It's like a commencement address or something at Berkeley. And he says, well, the thing is, we really don't know, but this might be the end. <laughs> like, this might be the end of our experiment in democratic self-rule. Because... You can see how it hasn't really thrived in the conditions of mass advanced industrialism. Like there have been challenges to it and many states have now fallen. So we have to think about why are these states tottering and these states have fallen and these states are doing something experimental that involves giving more power to the state than we would be willing to give, but not enough to make, you know, like the people really just were thinking, what are the possible outcomes of confronting the suffering, the, the economic suffering of that moment with the authority of this state? And is one of them going to continue <laughs> to be having the people elect their own rulers and... And he doesn't know. There's this incredible sadness at that moment because what people thought would happen in the 20s and were quite confident was happening hadn't been happening at all. So that's why I'm stuck in 1931. Thank you to Jill Lepore. We're going to post some of the articles of hers in The New Yorker that we talk about in that conversation on Twitter. Please follow us there. We're at TP podcast underscore. Now, quite briefly, a conversation that could last for about a week, and we're going to do it in about 12 minutes. Helen, Finbar and Chris are going to try and help me understand what the Supreme Court decided about Brexit. I don't think anything has changed that much, because the position of the Labour Party, or the position that Jeremy Corbyn has announced, is that the Labour opposition will support the government's move to trigger Article 50. And the Conservatives only have a small overall majority in Parliament, but all the opposition parties do have to pull against them if they're going to cause significant difficulty for the government. And in the absence of strong, united Labour opposition, Mrs May is going to get the parliamentary authorisation that she needs. There's an interesting subtext, though, that all the people within the Conservative Party who desperately want to stop Article 50 have been hiding in the tall grass biding their time. And Labour taking this position basically means they can't come out from undercover. And for me, the big problem is that this decision actually makes it worse for Labour. It puts them on the sharp end of a debate in Parliament, they have to have a clear position, and they can't find their way to a clear position. If for a government that lost first time round, then appealed to the Supreme Court and lost again, it's weird that they seem better off than they were before they started. Because Labour can't currently find a way to straddle the fissure of Brexit. They're still trying to live in this world of left-right, desperately running around trying to find a position which can accommodate all of the different aspects of Brexit, and it's impossible. So I'm going to speak for all of us here when I say I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> right? Nods, yep, no one here is a lawyer. So I'm, I hesitate to say this, and I try to read some of the judgments and then the dissents, and the dissent with which I seem to have some sympathy was the one that said, 
Article 50 doesn't actually take people's rights away. It just starts the process at the end of which their rights may be taken away. There may be a change of an Act of Parliament which gave them rights in the first place. So triggering Article 50 doesn't really change anything. And then it was clear all the way along there would be votes in Parliament. It's not as if by this point anyone really believed this whole thing could be done without a parliamentary vote. And I kind of thought that if I was on the Supreme Court, I might have sided with that one. I think there's a set of interesting questions about the the constitutionality of this and pretty much all of it turns in what was written into the 1972 European Communities Act. Now that that is not actually the title of the act, it's much more complicated and actually in itself somewhat illuminating. What's really striking in this respect is if you read the judgments is, is the referendum is just irrelevant. The whole set of arguments is about how to interpret the 1972 Act. It is as if this referendum did not happen in legal constitutional terms and that's pretty significant and I think if kind of people understood quite what the implication is being said here and now that's in good part the result of the way that the referendum bill was drafted but I think the other thing that's really interesting and it comes out in Lord Reid's dissent is that essentially what the majority is saying is is that the whole position of the British constitutional and legal order was transformed by Britain joining the EU. Now, in some sense, that substantively is the case because we had to accept, or Britain had to accept, the primacy of EU law over national law. But actually, the way the the, uh, 1972 Act was drafted went to considerable lengths to try to preserve the form of the British constitutional legal order. And what the majority of justices have said is that that doesn't matter, that the substance, the way that it was understood, has triumphed over the actual meaning of the Act. And I think that... The point in which Lord Reid has, has made his stand is saying that the majority has basically read into something in the Act that is not there. He's right in saying that, and the majority justice position is to say, actually, it only makes sense substantively if that were in the Act, and so therefore, in some sense, retrospectively, they're putting it into the Act. Well, you do sound like a lawyer. So no. just, <laughs> are you saying that joining the EU was a bigger deal constitutionally than it was portrayed at the time, and therefore leaving the EU is a bigger deal constitutionally than might be conveyed by some of the Brexiteers. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good way of putting it. And I think it's the crucial context of that is to see that actually that the way that the joining the EC then was presented at the time was very much in terms of trade. It was very much presented as an economic argument. As indeed the argument around the referendum was, Absolutely. right? It was not a constitutional Qu- argument. Question. But actually it was profoundly constitutionally consequential what was done. And some attempt was made, and I think it's a pretty clever attempt actually in the EC Act to preserve the existing British constitutional and legal order. But in the substantive sense, it was, I think, an act of constitutional vandalism. And that now, in this sense, it's not at all surprising that we now got something of a, not constitutional crisis, but a set of constitutional dilemmas in the rising of how to deal with now trying to get out of this union. And to Chris, some of the Brexiteers who've come out and now said, we accept this judgment, because after all, what we were all about was reasserting the sovereignty of Parliament. And that's what the Supreme Court has done. So it would be crazy for us now to push back on this. Is is there any plausibility in that? Does that have any kind of political resonance for you that they're saying, yeah, this is the game we were always in? In in a way, actually, it chimes a bit with what Helen was saying. Joining the EU did destroy parliamentary sovereignty. And so anything that reasserts it is is fine by us. That's a comfy thing for them to be saying right now. But there has been this irony or this paradox, depending on how sharp it is, that the people who took a stand in favour of parliamentary sovereignty haven't been its most vocal or visible advocates since the referendum. They've been keen on the centralisation of power in the executive, and they've been really quite comfortable with a relatively unaccountable executive. Drawing on plebiscitary um, justification, to use that horrible phrase, but like the people. Absolutely, absolutely. And and that does, if we're talking about constitutional vandalism, that does something to the structures of accountability in parliamentary or representative government. And so, obviously, now Brexiteers aren't going to deny themselves the chance to say they were in favour of parliamentary sovereignty all along. But it hasn't looked over the last six months or so as if this is chiefly what they're interested in. It looks to me as if a lot of the Brexiteers and the media have been treating this as a condition of emergency, that 
very strong, relatively unaccountable executive power is being championed as the way of getting out of what they see as the gigantic mess of EU membership, with ordinary regular parliamentary sovereignty to be deferred at some point in the future, which may also mean after a general election, because the people who want to champion parliamentary sovereignty are deeply unhappy with the composition of the current parliament, because, as Finbar says, there are an awful lot of people who think that leaving the European Union is a very bad idea. So we will see the restoration of something that looks like regular parliamentary government, but uh, not yet. And many of those people represent constituencies where the majority think leaving the EU is a great idea. Absolutely. But I think that what I was getting at earlier is is that this issue is just so much more complicated than saying it's the executive versus parliament. And this is where the EU kind of did run, you know, like coaching horses through our constitution or the existing constitutional order, because it isn't just a question of executive versus parliament. It's a status of EU law in relation to British law. And the way that you think about that will determine whether you think the executive can deal with EU matters or whether you think parliament has to deal with EU matters. So it's not a straight executive versus legislature conflict. And in that sense, the Brexiteers do have a point. I mean, it looks substantively odd to be standing aside and saying Parliament doesn't get a say in this and at the same time talking the language of parliamentary sovereignty. But if you throw into the EU legal order, it's, it's not quite such a, a muddle as that seems. And, and Finbar, one power the executive used to have in Britain was to call a general election when they felt like it. And now Parliament has constrained them and they're meant to wait for five years. But as Chris said, looming in the background of this, as it always was, were there to be a real impasse in Parliament, there would have to be a general election. And certainly, if it reaches the Lords, and the Lords is where the... That's where the the, fun begins. The fun begins, a general election will be needed to resolve this. Yeah. um, So that uh, hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. And I think that's why, as everybody is saying, there is this massive constitutional mess in some ways that's being attempted to be tidied up. But the political landscape just got even more difficult because the Lords is where there isn't a majority for the Conservative government. They can cause trouble. They can't infinitely block, obviously, but they can cause an enormous amount of trouble. At the same time, we now have assembly elections in Northern Ireland, which are going to distract everybody in some ways, and are papering over the fact that nobody wants to talk about what happens to the devolved administration in Northern Ireland, the cross-border institutions, and the government in Dublin, in the Republic, must be now essentially looking and saying, in the long run, we think day-to-day Ireland has become reunified in many ways. People cross the border all the time. There's no effective border. There's kind of the island of Ireland that nobody wants to talk about in the open. This, for me, makes it more likely that you're going to see Ireland as an island reunified, not in an immediate term, but in the 10, 20, 30 years time frame. So that's Northern Ireland potentially coming out of the Union. And that takes away the land border issue. That does some other things. So there's pluses and minuses in both directions. At the same time, Scotland well, would you put your money on another independence referendum before the end of the two-year negotiating period? I probably would. And so if Northern Ireland is heading towards going away, as well as Scotland, one land border gets taken away, one land border gets reintroduced. There's a whole bunch of the devolution questions which aren't being talked about at all in the middle of this. So we're going to potentially have the Lords creating havoc, the people within the Conservative Party in the Commons who want to come out of cover coming out of cover, Labour may be getting their act together, a general election, the Assembly elections, and an independence referendum in Scotland. And the one thing a general election will not resolve is those devolution questions. So you can imagine you've got this impasse with the Lords, there's a general election, and the people kind of answer back. But a general election in Northern Ireland doesn't solve anything. No. And the Assembly... A, a UK general election. Yeah, a UK general election in Northern Ireland solves nothing there. The Assembly elections will return the two parties that have always been arguing. And then there'll be an extended negotiating period as well. So actually the negotiations for the re-establishment of the Assembly and power sharing in Northern Ireland could take as long as the Brexit negotiations. So that's that's a complete mess that nobody knows what's going to happen. I think the Scotland issue is more complicated, though, because Scotland has its own... It's already sounded pretty... Don't, <laughs> don't make it more complicated. No, because <laughs> the Scotland issue is more complicated because Scotland has its own problem of the relationship of its legislature on this issue to its voters. 38% of Scots voted to leave on a relatively low turnout. It's quite possible that the, the actual proportion of leavers is somewhat higher than that. And they have an assembly or legislature that's even more out of kilt, far more out of kilt, actually, than the Westminster Parliament. Out of, Westminster. It should be out of kilter, but out of kilter, kilter. is fine. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> out, out of kilter with um, the... Um, 
I'm not threatening. Yeah, you completely. <laughs> but it's now my phrase of the day. Uh, it's terribly out of guilt. Scotland has a parliament that is even more unrepresentative in terms of the relationship between the proportion of people who voted Leave and the proportion of people who voted Remain, because there essentially wasn't a Leave campaign in Scotland, certainly engaged in... The Scottish Parliament is uniformly Remain. I'm not sure that's to the very last last person, but it's it's pretty much... Sorry, I should... I'm getting confused. Scottish representation in Westminster is uniformly Remain. And I've just so made it more at a certain point that, that, that um, the SNP have, have got to confront the fact that not only did 38% of Scots vote to leave, but actually a significant proportion of those people were people who backed independence in the referendum in 2014. This isn't a steady position in which Scotland can just, or the SNP rather, can just mobilise Scottish independence against a Westminster Union that's imposing leaving on the EU on the poor Scots. It doesn't quite work like that when you look at what goes on underneath it. Well, I hope that's clarified things for everybody. <laughs> we, we offer that service. I promise you we're going to come back to Article 50 and we're going to maybe be clearer about what it means in future weeks. Thanks to everyone for this week, including Josh Simons, who was our person on the ground in Washington on the day that Donald Trump became President of the United States. Do join us again next week to talk more about that and more about Brexit and more about everything else. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. That was 30 minutes of just pure, um, yeah, confusion. But it is a confusing situation. But this kind of goes back to sort of being your Powell speech in the, I mean, it's in, yeah. the, it's in the second reading of the European yeah, Community Bill in the Commons. The Powell just says, you know, you're all, you're all saying this is bad trade. But yeah. it isn't. It gets to it the is. heart of the British Constitution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes, shut up. I strangely <laughs> spent... <laughs> you, you cranky lunatic. I strangely spent the uh, night yeah. before Trump's election reading that because I thought we were going to be right. talking about that mm-hmm. the next morning. As you told me, we were going to. So I was... You spent, said that, don't I went back to the election. The election with Donald Trump. else just turns up and with the election with Donald Trump we're not going to go back to the same reading of the election. That's a much more complicated They have a... Scotland has a parliament... Scotland this has is a how po- we're ending, by the way. So yeah, Scotland. No Scotland. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.